The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, October 18th, 2020, on the basis of Matthew 22, verses 34 through 46. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. If the Gospel of Matthew were a baseball game, you could say it was the top of the ninth. It was Tuesday of Holy Week, just a few days before Jesus was going to go to the cross and die. And the Pharisees, his longtime rivals, were up to bat. Their disagreeable teammate, the Sadducees, had just struck out on a wildly irresponsible swing, having something to do with the resurrection of the dead. And so now it was their turn to knock it out of the park, take a victory lap, and send Jesus back to the dugout crying like a baby. And their secret weapon, as always, was a question. On the surface, it sounded like the lamest question ever asked. You can picture that Pharisee just pushing his glasses up the bridge of his nose and asking, what's your favorite rule to follow? It's a super lame question, but underneath, it was a question with an agenda. It was an attempt to drag Jesus into an age-old debate about the Old Testament, a debate that they were sure that they could win because they'd been practicing it for centuries. I don't think that any of us today would call ourselves Pharisees, but we find ourselves on their roster playing their game when we choose to play the game of right and wrong based on popular opinion instead of what God's Word tells us, or when we try to apply a democratic mindset to the Bible. I'm talking about that tendency we all have to treat God's Word as kind of an advice book, the first among equals, the place where we go when we need advice before we go ahead and do what we were going to do anyway. But when Jesus is standing on the mound, he's firing only fastballs, just straight and speedy answers that always land in our strike zone. How? By letting Scripture speak for itself. God is honest. Scripture is truthful, and we have to let them speak for themselves. Otherwise, we end up underestimating the reach of our sin, and in doing so, we turn our Savior into a mascot rather than a Savior. But if we let the law and gospel speak for themselves, we discover the most basic and the most awesome truths about God's plan for us. And so there's the question. What is the greatest commandment in the law? It's a question so loaded you could shoot your eye out with it. And it reveals a lot about where the Pharisees are coming from. And it reveals a lot about human nature in general. When a Pharisee is asking, what is the greatest commandment? What he really means is, what is the greatest sin? Because if the greatest commandment is the one that he's never broken, or the one that he's never struggled with, then he's all set. He's as righteous as righteous can be. That's just how humans are. That's, that's even how Lutheran humans are. We want to be righteous. Or more accurately, we want to be right. And, and so we tend to try and justify ourselves. The only way in the face of God's law, when we stare that law in the face, that we can feel right is if we, if we, we find ourselves able to call our own pitches. We say to God, I'll play your game, but when I'm on the mound and when I'm at bat, I'm going to be the umpire 
too. And so we rank our sins, and as long as we haven't committed any of the big ones, we feel safe, we feel secure, and most importantly, we feel right. I mean, just think about how history has moved along. Seventy years ago, a good upstanding citizen was somebody with a strong family unit and stronger family values. Someone who respected authority and worked hard. All good things. All God-pleasing characteristics. But while those people were securely settled in this cookie-cutter idea of righteousness, racism and sexism ran rampant, completely unchecked, tolerated and winked at even by people who would have thought of themselves as good Christian folks. And all the while, the God who created every race and both genders was displeased. Fast forward to today, racism and sexism are top-tier sins, and to be clear, I'm not excusing either of them. They're both terrible. But while we point our fingers at the racists and the sexists, the family unit has been broken down and scrapped for parts, marriage is treated as a temporary agreement, and the God who also created marriage is no less displeased. I guess what I'm saying is that the people back then were no less sinful than we are now, and I think we know that, but it goes the same way. It goes both ways. We're no less sinful now than people were back then, and that happens because in a world full of sinners, notions of right and wrong sway and shift at the whim of people who have decided to define morality apart from their creator. The result is that we're always guilty of something, and so we have to decide what to be mad about, what to get riled up about, what to accuse people of. But God speaks through his word to show us that morality, that right and wrong, is not a matter, it's not a matter of popular opinion, and it's not a democratic affair. So in answer to this question, Jesus fires two fastballs. Love God, strike one. Love your neighbor, strike two. In just two phrases, Jesus sums up all of God's expectations for us. He steals all pride and prejudice from the Pharisees by simplifying the law. A simplified law is absolutely a blessing to us Christians because it sums up God's word in two big rules, one word, love. It allows us to, it allows us to face every decision we make with the question, is this loving? Does it honor God? Does it respect the person standing next to me? The simplified law is the lifeblood of Christian liberty because it frees us from rigid, meticulous rule following and allows us to apply God's grace uniquely to each person in every unique situation that we find ourselves in. Jesus answers this way not only because it's true, but because if if he gave a specific answer, it was just going to drag them deeper and deeper into debate. And he's speaking to them as if to say, everything you want to debate with me is overshadowed already by God's command for you to love. And that's not up for debate. But it cuts both ways. It's a double-edged sword, you see, because if God's law, if his expectations can be summed up in two big rules, well, then the law suddenly becomes very fragile. 
all of us would be liars and fools if we said that we had never broken either of those two rules. They're easy to understand, but they're very easy to break because now, when I'm throwing insults at my coworker behind his back, I'm not just putting a scratch on one law out of 600, I'm shattering God's entire command to love my neighbor as myself. When I use God's name as just a word to throw around or like a joke, I'm not just putting, I'm not just dinging one commandment out of 10. I'm smashing God's entire command to love him with all my heart. No more dings, nicks, and scratches on an otherwise pristine track record, just the two pillars of God's law smashed to smithereens at my feet. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he received the Ten Commandments. I think that's a story most of us know. He went up to Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. And as he's coming down, he sees Israel, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, dancing and worshiping around this golden calf that they had made for themselves, a God that they had made for themselves in direct violation of God's command that you shall have no other gods. That's the first commandment. And so Moses did not respond by taking out his chisel and scratching out the first commandment saying, oh, you got that one wrong. Better not break the other nine. No, he, he took both tablets and smashed them on the ground. These people had violated God's law through and through. A simplified law, as Jesus gives it, leaves no room for ranking sinners because when we stand before that law, we all stand guilty. We all stand condemned. Jesus uses that law because it's the truth. And when you let the law speak for itself, that is what it tells you. So Jesus has been throwing softballs to, or not softballs, fastballs so far. Two strikes, one more to go. And I said that his, his, his answers to their questions were always fastballs. That's all I need, simple answers. That's how you beat the Pharisees. But now he's going to switch it up. His questions are always curveballs, the kind of curveballs the Pharisees wish that they could throw. And they're curveballs because they're always the last thing the Pharisees are, are expecting to answer. Their misunderstanding of the law had them feeling as close to perfection as they could be. And so their idea of the Messiah, that is the Christ or their Savior, their idea of the Messiah was a man who was just a little better than them. Not someone who needed to fix them, just all the problems around them. But Jesus intends to change their perspective by changing up his pitch, and so he asks them a simple question. Who do you say the Messiah is? He asked his disciples this just a few weeks before. Who do you say the Messiah is? Or more specifically, who do you, whose son do you say it is? That's not a loaded question. That's a leading question. The Pharisees knew exactly where he was coming from. They were smart. They knew that way back in the Old Testament, God came to King David and told him that he would have an heir, a, a son, a descendant, who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. For what it's worth, Israel hadn't even had a throne of its own to put a king on since Babylon took them off into exile. And so that heir, whenever he showed up, was going to be the Messiah, the king who would rule forever. So that's, that's an easy question. 
it's the son of David. Big bang, boom. The Pharisees toss the bat and start making their way around the bases. Case closed. But Jesus, quick reflex as ever, jumps up and snags that ball out of the air. He cracks open Psalm 110, where David, King David himself, writes about how that king is going to rule. And he begins, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put all of your enemies under your feet. That's two lords. That first lord, that's the one in all caps. That's the name of God, which in Hebrew is Yahweh. So we know that that one is God. And here it's worth noting that Jesus also says that David is speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So between you and me, we've got all three persons of the Trinity here. David refers to both of these people as Lord. One being God, one being the son of David. I don't know what family dynamics are like for you guys, but back then, especially, fathers did not call their sons Lord. In fact, sons didn't even call their fathers Lord. That was what a servant called his boss. And so if the great King David, probably the, one of the greatest kings in Jewish history, if not the greatest, if he's calling his descendant Lord, boss, master, well then this son of David has to be more than David's son. He's David's Lord. He's David's God. To spice things up a little more, just two days earlier was Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey with people swaying palm branches and, and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. So if Jesus is the son of David and the son of David is the Messiah and the Messiah is God, connect the dots. These boys are sharing a room with God in the flesh and they are way out of their depth trying to debate scripture with him. What's the reaction to that? Was it shock? Was it anger? If they understood what Jesus was saying, was it shock? Was it anger? Was it the realization of everything Jesus was trying to say that, that if God himself needs to be my savior, then my problem is truly serious? Or was it the greater realization that if God himself is saving me, then I am truly saved? Love God. Love your neighbor. To a world that could love neither its God or its neighbor as it should. Our God became our neighbor. And he didn't worry about, about which rule was the most important to follow. He didn't worry which commandment was at the top of the food chain because he followed every last one. And all the same, he took the penalty for every last one by going up to the cross. For every hateful word I've directed at my neighbor, for every hateful thought I've drifted towards God, he pays for that on the cross. And so David's son and David's Lord becomes David's savior. And so David's son and David's Lord becomes the savior even of those Pharisees who were doubting him. And so David's son and David's Lord 
becomes your Savior too. And so imagine it this way. There's three men standing on the edge of an airplane door, 10,000 feet up, and they're staring down at the ground. They're going to jump. They're terrified. And, and before they jump, they're discussing their strategies for how best to survive this fall. The first guy says, okay, I am going to go completely rigid, legs out straight, arms at my side. When I hit the ground, I'm going to break my legs, but I am going to be okay. I'm going to survive. Second guy says, oh, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. What you want to do is the old tuck and roll. I'm talking, you go into the fetal position at about 5,000 feet, you aim for a nice gradual hill, and you somersault gracefully to safety. I might end up with a few bruised ribs, but I'm going to make it. The third guy is stunned, shocked, speechless. He hadn't thought of a strategy for surviving, so he just turns to his friends and says, guys, I, I think I'm just going to use the parachute. Is that a rookie move? When you're, when you're plummeting towards the ground at terminal velocity, is the parachute just a crutch for the simpletons who can't outwit a 10,000-foot freefall? At the risk of insulting your intelligence, the answer is no. In fact, I would imagine that self-sufficiency is the least recommended method of skydiving. The difference between rejecting the parachute and rejecting Jesus is that people have survived falling out of planes. The law lays out your problem simply. It's sin. The gospel lays out your solution simply. It's Jesus, your Savior. If we understand these things, then why in the world would we ever seek out another solution to the problem? I mean, if the problem is coming from within us, then the solution has to come from outside of us. And friends, I'm telling you that this Jesus is that solution, not just because he can solve the problem, but because he's the only one who can. For those who underestimate their Savior, the law is the path to heaven. For those who underestimate their sin, the gospel is a last resort. But when you let the gospel, when you let the law and gospel speak for themselves, they reveal a law that is easy to understand and impossible to follow. And they also reveal a gospel that is insultingly simple in its meaning, but unfathomably deep in its significance. So why complicate, with my opinion, what God has made simple with his love? As Americans, and as 21st century humans, really, the desire to solve all our problems by shouting our opinion and making our voice heard is only natural. But trust what God says about you. Because even though his law calls you condemned on your own, in Jesus, his gospel calls you justified. Amen. Thank you.